Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, October the 1st, 2012, and this is episode 989 of the Survival Podcast. And it is October. October has a lot of things going on. One, we've entered the last quarter of the year. So we're on the downward hill, uh, kind of at the point, you know, if you come down a hill on a bicycle or coasting a car, or what have you. When you get about halfway down the hill, it seems like that's when the momentum really begins to pick up, and it takes you less time to get from the, or from the, from the middle of the hill to the bottom than it does from the top to the center. Just think about that, how the, the acceleration magnifies as you come down. And that's what seems to happen, even though the time for the last 90 days of the uh, year is the same for the time of the 90 days preceding it. It just seems to go faster. We're going to go through holidays. We're going to go through uh, the end of the year, and that's just significant in the minds of individuals. And it's significant because time's marching on. Time's marching on, and I'll ask you the question I do from time to time. How are you furthering your personal liberty? If you're not furthering your personal liberty, you're losing personal liberty. And we're going to talk about that in a unique way today at the end of today's show. I just wanted to plant that seed early. Another thing going on in October, though, The Survival Podcast will cross a true milestone for any podcast. There's not even a lot of podcasts out there that I think that have an episode 1,000. And this will be an episode 1,000 that will be unique because it will be all about you guys and how you've changed your lives because of the Survival Podcast. I'm going to allow one more day for people to make calls into the uh, episode 1,000 if you just hadn't gotten around to it, and one more day to send me pictures for Revolution 2.0. And at the end of today... Is the official cutoff. There's already more pictures than I can use, but I can use as much audio as it comes in. There's no time limit to how long an episode of the Survival Podcast can be, so definitely you can make your calls. You do that by calling 866-691-5353. That's a special number just for episode 1000. If you want to know what that's like, there'll be a link today in the show notes. It says be a part of episode 1000. You can listen to episode 550 and the uh, one-year anniversary show and get a feel for what these shows are like. Uh, before we get into today's show, which of course, since it's a Monday, that means it's all about your emails and things that have come in out of the news and things like that, kind of a primer for the week and a look ahead of what's coming for us economically, politically, socially, etc. Uh, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Backyard Food Production. That's Marjorie Wildcraft with her DVD, Growing Your Groceries. Uh, I'll tell you what, it's an incredible look at how one family created as much self-sufficiency as, as most people could ever hope to have uh, on a piece of land that's rather large but not exactly ideal for growing things. You're talking about really sandy soil in South Texas. And uh, they've been able to do it, and they've been able to, even though they have a lot of land, to do most of it on a, a piece of land not much bigger than, let's say, maybe an acre. That's where the majority of their food production takes place. And that means you can use her DVD to turn your backyard into a food production machine, whether your backyard is 40 acres or a half-acre suburban lot. Check it out today. BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre can help you put the final piece in the three pieces that go into being an armed citizen. Phase one, have a gun. I mean, you got to have a gun or you're not an armed citizen, right? I mean, that's pretty cut and dry. Most people understand that if you want to exercise your Second Amendment right, you have to purchase a weapon. 
Phase two, if you have no ammunition for that weapon, it is a club, an overpriced club, possibly something you can hawk or pawn or barter with. Then phase three, and the one that most often gets left out, it probably should be phase one. If you've not been taught at least basic gun safety growing up in a family that had that as part of it, a hunting family or what have you, and that is training. And even if you have that basic understanding and operational systems of a gun, training for Real-life combat scenarios, active shooter scenarios is so important because if you ever have to do it, you'll be surprised at how difficult it actually is and how much you're going to rely on training at that point. So you need to get great training, and Fortress Defense Consultants is one of the places you can get awesome, awesome training. Check them out today. Make sure when you contact Frank and his uh, cadre of instructors, you let them know you heard about them on TSP. And remember, this is something I don't think a lot of people have taken advantage of. And I think it's something that maybe if you have a shooting team, right? You have a group of guys that gets together and go shooting, or guys that work that all talk about shooting and talk about guns together. Get together and say, hey, why don't we put ten of us together? Let's contact Frank, and instead of us traveling all the way there, let's have him travel out to our area, locate a range we can do our training at, and bring training to us. That's a great bonding experience for a group of guys. It's a great way to get training, and it's a great way to keep the cost down. Because it costs less to bring one man in the training to you than to bring ten guys to his training. Think about that, and he's absolutely willing to do that for you. So check him out today again, FortressDefenseConsultants.com. Next up today, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You'll be supporting the show at about 20 cents an episode. And I'm going to leave it at that because I want to get into the main topic of today's show, which are your emails and things like that. I'm actually going to start out with one. And this is what frustrates me about Russia today and, and like Kaiser Report and all these things on Russia today. It seems like everything that's on Russia today that I happen to hear when I watch it is on their YouTube channel or their surrogate's YouTube channel, like so Kaiser's YouTube channel or whatever. Except the stuff I want to put on the air. Whenever I hear something on the TV and I want to put it on the air and give the source that I got the information from credit, it's never available. At least I couldn't find it this morning. But I was listening to the Kaiser report this week. And he was talking about these bonds in California. And I went and looked up a story on this to verify it off Reuters. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's absolutely verified at this point. And, and let me tell you how Kaiser was explaining it. School districts in California are so broke for money that they're making deals like this. Come give us a, a billion dollars and then in 30 years or 40 years we'll give you 40 billion dollars. You, you, you can't cash it in early. We can't pay it off early. The buy rate is fixed. The payoff rate is fixed. And the time is fixed. It, it seems ridiculous. But let me read to you this article again off Reuters. Nearly 30% of all appreciation bonds issue, have been issued in California. So of all the people that are dumb enough to do this in the entire country, California is dumb enough that they've done it 30% of the time. Uh, and that's the total number of bonds, too, so that's not the dollar value. Some of their dollar value is astronomical as a percentage. California lawmakers aim to clamp down on a type of municipal bond. They're going to clamp down on it. Now, you know why they're going to clamp down on it? Because all of a sudden people heard about it and freaked out. Now it's important that we do something about it. So how this has been going on for a long time, but as soon as uproar comes, then they're going to do something. Let me go back to it. Uh, California lawmakers aim to clamp down on a type of municipal bond that has left a San Diego school district with nearly a $1 billion bill, 10 times the $105 million initial loan. 
The effort stems from a controversy hanging over the Poway Unified School District since early August when the Voice of San Diego website ran a report on the $981 million the district will pay for the capital appreciation bond it sold last year. In any other circumstances, it would be called usury, said Republican State Senator Joel Anderson, a San Diego lawmaker who wants to prevent similar debt deals. CABs, or CABs, defer payments while interest compounds with swells payments when they kick in. CABs are not unusual and have been popular with school districts and states with fast-growing student enrollments, according to Fitch Ratings. Nearly $92.8 billion of the debt has been issued since 1980, and $77 billion of it remains to be repaid. So they owe $77 billion they haven't even begun to pay on yet because they don't pay it. It's like a balloon payment at the end. You get it, how this works? Uh, around a third of the outstanding volume is on books of issuers in California, according to Thomson Reuters data. Uh, capital appreciation bonds have been popular in Texas and Illinois, so my home state is stupid too. The Poway District will pay off its cabs from 2033 through 2051. Okay, so the school district's going to start having to pay this bill in 2033 while they're trying to finance keeping the school running in 2033 and will be paying on this debt from 2033 to 2051. Okay, you got how this works? The bonds cannot be repaid sooner. If the school district says, we've come into money and we want to buy our freedom from this debt, we'll pay you the interest accrued up till now, they can't do it. That's under the terms of the bond. All right. Like other zero-coupon bonds, cabs are more expensive to issuers than ordinary debt. The Poway District's bonds rated at AA2 by Moody's Investors Service and AA- by Standard & Poor's Rating Services, which proves that Moody's and Standard & Poor are stupid. To believe that a school district in California is going to be able to come up with 10 times the money they can't come up with now in 2033 with the future of this nation proves that Moody's and Standard & Poor and all these credit rating things are nothing but a bunch of hokey anyway. All right, um, They're sold with a 6.56% yield on their August 2033 maturity and a 712 yield on their August 2051 maturity. If the district sold its cabs as bonds to be repaid immediately with a 30-year maturity, they would have had a yield in the 5% range, a municipal debt trader said. Holding down property, and it goes on to why they're doing it. But let me point out the danger that's not being pointed out here. So it's one or two points of interest higher. Well, you know, we get the money now, we can balance the books now, we can keep things running now, we pay a little bit more for the money. Yeah, it sounds like a bit we borrowed them, you know, uh, a million and now we have, or a hundred million and now we have to pay back a billion. But if we did it this way, instead of being borrowing a hundred million and paying back a billion, we would have borrowed a hundred million and paid back eight hundred million. It's only two hundred million dollars difference and we don't have to pay the bill until 2033. What's the problem? It allows them to become more reckless with their spending. That's the problem. It'll create bigger deficits than you've ever seen in your life. And I guarantee you this is going to happen, not less, as they quote-unquote clamp down, because as soon as the next story comes up, and people go, oh, oh, gee, there's something shiny over there to be mad about now, this whole thing will go away. Because they can't afford to not do this right now. What are they going to do? Change? They can't change it anyway. It already happened, at least in the school district. And again, it's been it's been done since the 70s. It's going to accelerate going forward. But let me draw, see the big numbers and the school district and the government just take you out of the realm where you can actually understand what's really going on here. Think about it this way. You're sitting at home. The new year has just been rung in. You've taken down the Christmas lights. You've re recovered from the hangover 
and the New Year's TV commercials start coming on. And one of the things you'll always see advertised then is, come down to Joe Blow's Furniture Outlet where we're clearing out our inventory from last year of furniture. And we're going to make sure that we sell everything that we have. And guess what? There'll be no payments until 2016. That's right. Everybody's approved low, easy credit terms and requirements. It's even a low interest rate of only 7%. And the best part, again, is you don't make a payment until 2016 or 2017 or whatever. Right? So you go buy your couch and your crap and your stuff and you put your big screen TV in and you go out and you, you, you lay down $3,000 and you, at least there you can start to make payments, right? Cause it's no interest, no penalties until that date, but no one does it. And then all of a sudden the bill comes due and they have to start making payments and $3,000 worth of furniture ends up costing like, you know, $20,000 if you make minimum payments beginning at the date they become due. It's the same thing. And it makes it very easy to behave recklessly. Now, here's the problem. By the time the money comes due, the stuff that you bought isn't worth anywhere near as much as what you paid. It's been pushed through a cycle. right? You want the new TV. You want it. Okay, so the school districts are pushing that cycle out 30 years, 20 to 30 years. Does kids that this money will be used to quote-unquote educate, if you can even call what the school districts are doing education anymore, those kids will be gone through college and unemployed with student loan debt by the time the school district begins to pay on the debt that it's incurring to do this nonsense. And this is just one more example of how off the rails the economy is going and how bad things are going to get and why there's going to be a giant with a reset button in a currency revaluation that is going to destroy the wealth of millions and millions and millions of Americans. That's why this is coming, because of stuff like this. I found a new feature, by the way, this week uh, on the you know the debt clock, clock, the U.S. debt clock, where you can go and look at it. I don't know why I never noticed it before, or maybe it just wasn't there and it's relatively new. But I'm sitting on the uh, debt clock right now, and I'm wondering, around 2008 when I started to tell you that we were headed for $16 trillion, $20 trillion worth of debt in the future in 2008, How much did we owe back then? So I can actually rewind the debt clock. There's a little thing at the top, debt clock time machine. And in 2008, right about now, and I was only doing the show for a few months at this point. I was telling you the stock market was about to crash. Instead of owing $16 trillion, we owed about 10. So we've grown from $10 trillion to $16 trillion in four years. Okay, that's $6 trillion, which means we put on half of the total debt that had been acquired from George Washington to the end of George Bush, half of that number was added on under Barack Obama. And this is not about Obama because I'm going to give you another number that's uh, it's a little bit more sobering. It's actually worse. I'm going to rewind the debt clock right now to the year 2000. Now, can you think in your head back to 2000? That's 12 years ago, right? We're talking about the handoff. From ass clown Clinton to ass clown Bush. How much money do you think the federal government, the United States national debt was in 2000? 5.6 trillion. So we've tripled the debt between 2000 and 2012. But they promised reform. They promised a cut. Well, the interesting thing about the debt clock uh, time machine is I can go forward. I can go to 2016 and project by current rates of spending what it's going to look like 
in 2016 in just four years. And trust me, all of you believers in the dichotomy that think we'll fix this if we put Mitt Romney in, these numbers aren't going to change with Mitt Romney or Barack Obama by any meaningful number, either way, depending on which one is in charge. By 2016 on this day, so that would be October 1st, 2016, 2012, the United States national debt will be $22.4 trillion. And I ask you, where's the breaking point? Where can we no longer service the debt? And I want you to know what they feel they'll need to tax you at. What will U.S. income taxes be in 2016? So what will we all pay combined in federal income tax? $2.8 trillion. And at that point, um, the total tax revenue will be about $4 trillion. And they will be running a budget deficit projected at about a trillion dollars a year. So this is what they will tell you as we head toward that day. See, we're cutting the deficit. We're cutting the deficit from a trillion and a half down to a trillion. Isn't that great? <laughs> See, this is how governments tell you they're cutting spending. They're cutting the overspending. They're not cutting the spending. They will grow the debt by $8 trillion dollars. Over four years, and they will look you in the face, if they can still do that, if there's not riots in the streets by then, if we're not already to that revaluation point by then, and they will tell you everything's getting better, look how good we did, we've reduced the deficit by a third. That's what they'll say. But you'll already know that's coming because, you know, you've already heard the numbers here, and you know what to prepare for. And there's a number here at the bottom that doesn't even seem to jive with another story sent to me by a listener, And that's the unfunded liabilities. That'll be like, from that point forward, from August 16th forward, how many obligations will the United States government have to pay that none of the money accounts for, that they'll have to borrow additional monies just to cover? And that number is $147 trillion. Remember in 2008, David Walker was sounding the alarm, right as I was, and saying that we had over $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities? Well, from 2008... Uh, to 2016, that number will grow from 100 trillion to 147 trillion, which which brings us up to an interesting dynamic about what's going on, folks. That what is the real increase in debt? Should we be actually looking at how much we owe today, or how much we've spent without spending? And let me explain how this works. So the government puts a program into place in 2012, and that program spends. I don't know, $100 billion in 2012. And then we put that spending against the debt if we didn't have the $100 billion. And we say, okay, the debt this year grew by $100 billion. But what if that program is going to be $1.5 billion next year, $1.9 billion the year after that, $2.1 billion, it's going to continue and grow over time. And there is no way that that program is going to be funded. That's what's called an unfunded. That's what an unfunded liability is. And unfunded liabilities can live and grow for a long time. For example, a lot of the $147 billion in unfunded liabilities that we have are Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Let's just look at Social Security. It's actually smaller than Medicaid. All right? Social Security's unfunded liabilities is smaller than Medicaid because it has greater funding. That's, that's why. And on some levels, lower cost. In theory, there's no reason Social Security shouldn't be able to work. Your government takes your money, saves it for you, and gives it back to you. 
If that's what they actually did, Social Security could, could function. It still might not be the best way for older people to save money, but it's a mandatory re- re- program. At least they would have something in their old age. And, you know, I mean, you could make some kind of a case for it. But since they take the money and spend it, and then they have to earn it back through the taxation on somebody else, it becomes unfunded. In other words, the money's gone now. It's, it's owed back to Social Security. And this is what people will say that makes the debt not as big a problem as I say it is. Well, we owe it to ourselves. What happens when we can't pay it to ourselves, though? No one, no one completes that circle. It's all these old people, all these retired people, all the legitimately disabled people that are on these assistance programs that this money was earmarked for. Yeah, earmark's not always a bad word, but then the earmark was ignored and the money was taken away and used for other programs that say, we'll pay it back later. That's unfunded liabilities. So many of the unfunded liabilities that we're looking at today have their genesis in the 1930s under the Roosevelt New Deal. And they've compounded decade after decade after decade until we hit a crisis point in the 1980s when the president most lauded for cutting taxes, Ronald Reagan, gave us the biggest tax increase that's ever been seen by quote-unquote saving Social Security. Moving Social Security taxes from a neighborhood of 1-2% up to about 6 7%, but when we really looked at the employer match, we were looking at about 12%, 14% when we added Medicare and Medicaid to the equation. So the biggest tax increase in history happened under the Reagan administration, and it was in the payroll taxes, and it affected everybody because payroll taxes are payable from dollar one with no deductions, no reductions, right? No, no outs, no loopholes. Everybody pays up to the cap. And that unfunded liability has taken us to where we are today. And I spent a lot of time on that because there's another story out this week that you really, I mean, you really have to understand what I just said to understand what is being said. This is on Bloomberg uh, by Lawrence Koitaloff and Scott Burns. Blink, the U.S. debt just grew by $11 trillion. Okay, so here's the article. Republicans and Democrats spent last summer battling how to best save $2.1 trillion over the next day, uh, the next decade. They are now spending this summer battling on how best to not save $2.1 trillion over the next decade. The course, in the course of that year, the U.S. government's fiscal gap, the true measure of the nation's indebtedness, rose by $11 trillion. So here we are talking about $16 trillion in debt, a projected debt of over $20 trillion very, very soon. And the reality is our debt obligations just rose by $11 trillion. So it doesn't seem to jive. But remember about the unfunded liabilities, the future obligations to pay, which is a future obligation for a government to tax, $11 trillion. That's what it grew by this year. The fiscal gap is the present value difference between projected future spending and revenue. It captures all the government liabilities, whether they're official obligations to service treasury bonds or unofficial commitments for paying food stamps or buying something like drones. Okay, so here's the scary part, and here is where Jack helps you figure out the discrepancy. U.S. National Debt Clock, let's go ahead and go back to uh, the current unfunded liabilities. What are they right now today? And I'm waiting for it to load real quick here, because I had it flash-forwarded up to uh, 2016, and that's $120 trillion. So if that number's not scary enough, we go over to these two folks on Bloomberg. They say it's not $120 trillion. They say it's $222 trillion. I think that was the number. It's uh, I've lost it here on the page. $211 trillion. I don't want to 
you know, I don't want to, there's, oh no, it's now 222 trillion. I was right. Last year it was 211 trillion. That's an 11 trillion dollar difference. This year's true federal deficit is 10 times larger than the official deficit and roughly enlarged the entire uh, stock of U.S. official debt in public hands. This is what the important part is to get though. This huge discrepancy of almost $100 trillion comes from the fact that the official unfunded liabilities are Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and U.S. bonds. It doesn't account for any of the program spending that are not required spending. So it's not mandatory spending to buy a drone for the Department of Homeland Security, but they're going to spend the money. You see how that works, right? When we look at the deficit, it's not all mandatory spending. There's money there that could be cut, but what are you cutting? The Department of Defense, the CIA, the FBI, right? And I'm not saying there's not cuts to be made. I'm saying they're not going to do it. And that's what these guys are saying. So what they're saying right now is we look into the future obligations of the United States government. We have over $222 trillion of spending that has no funding other than new debt in the next 30, 40 years. And at some point, that has to break. So let me read you a little bit uh, more of the article. The fantastic and dangerous growth in the fiscal gap is not new. In 2003 and 2004, economists Alan Archbach and William Gale extended the CBO's short-term forecast and measured fiscal gaps of $60 trillion and $86 trillion, respectively. In 2007, the first year the CBO produced alternative, alternative fiscal scenario, the gap by our reckoning stood at $175 trillion. By 2009, when the CBO began reporting the AFS annually, the gap was $184 trillion. In 2010, it was $202 trillion, followed by $211 trillion uh, in 2011 and $222 trillion in 2012. Now, you can read the rest of the article if you want to. It starts talking about how when the baby boomers start to collect, this huge component that will be just in their Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid benefits, and it is huge. And there's 78 million people that are kind of within closing distance of that gap. And, and that's a huge piece of this. But then there's all these other components to it. Now, here's the bigger picture. When I tell you that there's no real difference in who's running our government... This is what I'm talking about. You will not hear this brought up in a debate. If, if you were really trying to reform the economy of this country and you were running against somebody that spent money like a drunken sailor uh, that won a, a big gambling lot right on his way out on a leave, I mean, wouldn't you think you would say something like, hey, look, guys, I know $16 trillion sounds bad, but guess what? Uh, we're, we're in way deeper trouble than that. Looking forward, we have over $220 trillion worth of, of obligations we can't cover right now. We need serious reform. And, and you know, my opponent's not going to tell you that because he doesn't want you to know. Now, why wouldn't somebody like Mitt Romney stand up and say that? Because he has no intention of doing anything about it. That's why. Because the entire government plan right now is to just run it until it runs out and reset it. And that's why you heard me come out with videos, and I do have a third one coming out this week uh, explaining more about it, but why QE3 will quote-unquote work. Not because it's a good thing, not because it's a good idea, because of what it's designed to do. It's designed to kick the can a little further. It's designed to let them build up their war chest. And when I say things like this, people say to me, it sounds like conspiracy talk, how are you so sure? It's just because I can do mathematics. 
It's just because I can look at logical, reasonable things. I can look at things like a school district saying, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll give you, you know, a billion dollars for a hundred million dollars. We'll buy a mil, a hundred million today with a billion tomorrow. And we won't pay any payments until the, until, you know, the grace period runs out. And, and, and you know why they're doing that? Because they're going, we'll never pay that. This, this whole city and school district is going to go bankrupt anyway. Right? By the time these guys come to collect, there'll already be a receivership judgment and they won't get that money anyway. This is how elected officials and school board officials are starting to think. This is a very dangerous turn in the mentality. There was always at least some level of, yeah, we can fix this. The reality now is we'll tell them we can fix it. We know we can't fix it, so we might as well make the most do with what we can with the time that we have with what's available to us. And when it falls apart, the more we've already bought and paid for that we can keep, the more infrastructure, uh, the more network, the more whatever we bought, when it falls apart, they can't repossess this stuff. It doesn't make any sense for them to. And even if we, if we get into a point where like we have to sell off assets, we can pick what we sell off. This is, this is what they're thinking now. And, and I've had this confirmed by, I don't have a lot of inside sources, but I've had this confirmed that this mentality is starting to permeate. It's just starting to actually be spoken of a little bit more openly. Like, yeah, this is going to run off the cliff, but we can't, we know we can't fix that. So what can we do now with what we have? Doesn't that sound like somebody that knows that they're never going to pay their MasterCard bill, justifying why they bought the big screen TV that they don't have to pay on until 2016? Doesn't it? And where are we going with this? What's what's next? Okay, so uh, in about 2008, 2009, as I started to do this show, I didn't get too political. I talked about the election a lot because, you know, we were coming up to an election. I talked about it more than I am this time because I've gotten to the point where it isn't going to matter what I say. Most people that have a, an opinion one way or the other aren't going to listen to me anyway. It's not, and I even said back then, it's not my job to sway an election, whether it's for dog catcher or president. It's my job to liberate the minds of individuals and get them prepared for what's coming. And one of the things I was telling you back then, and I was called a conspiracy theorist by this, for this by many people who even liked everything else I was doing, that the whole global warming thing was designed to create a global tax, a global tax on carbon. And in fact, that was just one of the taxes that they wanted to implement, that global governance was the goal. And this was just one way that they could tax the wealthiest nations, redistribute wealth at a global level, and that the UN would want this. And people say, you're nuts. They're not going to, you can't tax people. That's crazy. Well, they can't unless they do, and then people agree to pay. Because the United States can just basically say, we're not going to pay this. But it doesn't mean they can't pass it. And it doesn't mean they can't tell the United States you owe it. And it doesn't mean that, you know, all these other nations, if they decide it's a good idea, can't decide to do some of the same things through the UN that the US has done, except we have a lot of veto power. But it doesn't really matter what can be done. It matters what's the mentality. Because if the mentality's there, If you eventually get somebody in this country willing to go along with the mentality and a government willing to go along with the mentality, you get the same result. So right now, the U.S. is posturing and saying no to what I'm about to tell you. But here is the, the, uh, the article. I heard about this on my own as well, but Matthew sent this to me. And he says, how does the U.N. have authority to tax anything? And my response to him was technically, they don't. But then again, this is what they want to do. So remember, Jack told you this 
2008-2009, was called batty and a conspiracy theorist for it. The United Nations will stay busy after the annual General Assembly meetings wrap up this week, and on the agenda for upcoming debates are whether several global taxes should be implemented to milk rich member states and assist the impoverished. The United States plans to finalize their agenda for the rest of this year's session this week in order to establish a game plan stretching into December. And Fox News reports that among the issues that can be discussed during the future hearings will be a series on international taxation that will take from the rich and give to the poor. With the UN General Assembly essentially acting as a global Robin Hood, aiding countries that are still struggling to emerge. I know you heard Fox News, but folks, I'm reading this off RT. Fox News claims in an exclusive report published this week that among the global taxes slated to be considered by the UN this year are A, 1% tax on billionaires around the world. One, billionaires! They'll, they'll be, you always start taxes with the rich and trickle them down to the poor. right? And again, the poor people in this country are rich to other people in the world. Please understand that. So 1% uh, tax on billionaires. So if you're a billionaire... In France, the UN says you owe them 1% of your wealth every year. Just 1%? What are, you, what are you complaining about? It's only 1%, right? That's in addition to the money you owe France. It's the addition to the money that you owe uh, any other government that you're in. And then uh, there'll be a tiny tax on all financial transactions worldwide. A tiny tax. Well, what's tiny? Up 1%? So on all financial transactions, that would mean that you go down... And uh, you 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 buy something and you write a check for it. Well, that's a financial transaction. You use your debit card or Mastercard, uh, Visa card, whatever. That's a financial transaction. Every time money moves anywhere between any two parties through the banking system, there'll be a tax. Would that be another reason to move to a cashless society? See, if you have a cashless society, everything becomes a a true financial transaction, a traceable transaction that can be taxed simply because it occurred. It's not just about taxing the income generated or you know local sales tax, but a financial transaction tax payable to the United Nations. Hmm. Uh, but it's just going to be a tiny tax on all financial transactions worldwide, and even yet another fee tacked on to the already heavily taxed airline tickets. So then when you go to buy your plane ticket, it says it's $120, and you end up paying like $190 plus $50 for your bag, it'll be another $10. It'll be like a global surcharge. Columbia University professor Jeffrey Sachs, who also serves as a U.N. Associate Secretary General, suggest the global excise tax include carbon taxes and other green-friendly initiatives in order to find a way to tackle the ever-present issue of climate change. Oh, no, Jack, that's not what they're doing. Quote, we have to make a technological transition that's quite deep to new energy systems, new transport systems, more efficient buildings, and that can be backloaded. Sachs said to the media earlier this week at the Climate Change Week New York City Conference in New York. UN Secretary General Bon Kamon has pegged Sachs as the head of the new intellectual lobbying group of experts So he's appointed by the UN Secretary General to do this, right? Called the Sustainable Development Solutions Network. And he says he will be in charge of working closely with, quote, the United Nations agencies, multilateral financing institutions, and other international organizations, end quote, in order to keep a catastrophic climate disaster from impacting the earth any sooner than experts already expect. I thought we were already past the point of no return, 
right? At the Climate Week conference, Sachs says he has no problem putting global taxes on the books to clean up the planet for future generations and put them at ease. Quote, I'm happy to have the future pay for a lot of this. I'm happy to have the future pay for a lot of this? What the hell does that mean? Sachs said, according to Bloomberg News, it doesn't have to be current finance. In other words, I'm happy to put the tax in place and let us, let us pay for it with future taxation. Right. Fox News now reports that this is that quote and uh, and around the world tax it'll require rich countries to cough up $25 per ton of carbon dioxide emissions that could bring in as much as 250 billion alone to be used uh by other member states. The proposed billionaire tax Fox adds could collect upward of 50 billion annually. The UN is expected to consider the likelihood of certain innovative methods of financing as they call it as they continue discussions this week's general assembly into December when the GA session wraps up. So this is this is the thing, man. I'm telling you, the entire concept of we need to tax carbon is being pushed by the United Nations so that we can create a global tax. The second you create a global tax, you have a global government. The very thing that gives a government power is its ability to tax. Now, I'm not talking about blue-helmeted stormtroopers coming to your house and, and shaking you down to see if you have incandescent bulbs. That type of conspiracy talk is what gets in the way of people seeing the reality of what we have here. And I think what people would say is, well, maybe we should have a carbon tax. You know, Jack, we got to clean the planet. It's not even really the point when you look at it being a global tax, is it? It's about creating a global government with global power. If you fund something, you give it teeth. It has power. So, And then, well, it's a billionaire's tax. I don't care about the billionaires. Did you miss the financial transaction tax? That would be a hundred times bigger than the carbon tax and the billionaire's tax put together. A, a tiny tax, what, 1%, 1.5% on every single financial transaction to happen. That's a global sales tax, folks. It's a global sales tax. It would impact every human being on planet Earth and every economy developed enough to track its transactions. And that is the, an immense amount of wealth transference. And it's putting an immense amount of power in the UN. Now, the good news is they can talk about this all they want right now. Even with Obama, this ain't likely to happen yet. But when the U.S. is crippled financially, maybe we're willing to make a deal that we wouldn't normally make. Just saying. You got to look at the big picture, the long-term picture. And even if it ain't going to happen, the people that are pushing the agenda, are they really pushing an agenda for what they tell you? Or what, what do the cards really say when you turn them over? What's the real agenda? Now, I told you this was the agenda in 2008. You have an official statement now by the UN, by the UN Secretary General, uh, and by a UN uh, Assistant Secretary General uh, who happens to be an American. And the big push is we got to fix climate change. we got to fix climate change. I'm telling you guys, that's what this is really about. Global temperatures have been rising for 30 years. But really, really... And just because the weather changes doesn't mean that uh, it's your tailpipe coming out of your car. But this isn't really about climate change. This is about global taxes. Please see that. Take the climate change out. Just, just let's just throw it away right now, right? I'm bringing it up because there's a certain. I don't want to be right, but I was right, and I want to say C, because I want you to see the credibility that I should have with you guys by now on this. But we'll just we'll just table it. We'll just table it. We'll just say that Jack said that there was a goal to push global taxation. 
And let's just leave the billionaire's tax and the financial transaction tax and the tax on all airline tickets globally. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough to show you what the agenda really is? Let's move forward and let's look at something else. Uh, let's go back to California for a minute here and let's look at what California is doing. Uh, they're trying to help you. If you live in the state of California, you know, times are tough. It's hard to save money and feel safe about it. So the government has a solution for you. They've destroyed the housing market. They're borrowing money at a 10 times re repayment rate uh, by financing the future. They've put several cities into bankruptcy. There's more of them lining up to go. And they created all this problem and they feel bad about it. So now I have a solution for you. They're asking you to, uh, after that brilliant track record, let them take over your retirement account. Yep. Instead of taking your retirement for you, they just sell you on the idea, right? So here you go. Sacramento, California. California Governor Jerry Brown signed legislation Friday that will create the nation's first state-administered retirement savings program for private sector workers. Over the objections of critics who say it creates a new liability for taxpayers, the bill will establish the California Secure Choice Retirement Savings Program for more than 6 million low-income private sector workers who employers do not offer retirement programs. Let me tell you the brilliance of this move. Let me tell you the brilliance of this move. <laughs> They're only giving it to lower-income private sector, record, uh, sector workers whose employers do not all offer retirement plans. Do you know what will happen? Do you know what's going to happen? Class warfare is going to rise up and say, why, why are the only, see, like the, the middle income, upper income tier, go, I don't want them to do this, right? But if you only give it, see, you got to play chess, not checkers. You only give it to the, the group of people that they're most alienated from. You know what they're going to say? Why the hell can they get this and we can't? I'm telling you, within a couple of years, within a couple of years, the people that say not to do this now will be going, let us in. This is a brilliant move, and look for the federal government to follow suit because they want to nationalize retirement accounts as well, to create a secondary tier. It's almost going to be a second type of Social Security that you pay into voluntarily and you control your own money. Let me read you the rest of the article. The program directs employers to withhold 3% of their workers' pay unless the employee opts out of the savings program. This is, this is really, really key. Lower income workers would be the ones that are most likely to go, they don't save any money anyway. But if it's a government program and it automatically happens, there'll probably be a very high participation rate. So you take people in your state that are the lowest income people, that are contributing the least to your tax rolls, and you put a 3% tax on them, but it's, a, it's truly a voluntary tax because they can opt out, but you do it automatically through their employers, You know you're dealing with a lower, lower educated level of employee that will probably listen to their employer when they say, this is good for you. This is like a pension program. It's a pension program for your future. Okay, yeah, right? <laughs> It will be administered by a seven-member board chaired by the state treasurer. This is the state treasurer who's got California on the verge of bankruptcy. He's going to look after your money, these six million people in California, right? The board will select a professional fund manager, Goldman Sachs, um, <laughs> Come on, this is comical if it wasn't true, right? Which could be a private investment form or firm or the state's public pension uh, to maintain the money. State Senator Kevin DeLeon, Democrat Los Angeles, introduced the bill earlier this year in response to what he called the looming retirement tsunami as millions of lower wage workers face financial hardship in their retirement years. He said the program will offer off 
act is. So I hadn't even read the article yet. Just love the chess component here, right? That I said, listen to this. The program will act as a supplement to Social Security by offering private sector workers a portable savings plan with a guaranteed return. I'll also tell you something about doing business in California. If you do business in California, it follows you for the rest of your life, even when you move your company. Anything associated with your company back in the state, they try to tax you for. So if you leave California with one of these plans, they're going to find a way to, to, to you know, to say it's portable. <laughs> you know what that means? This is what portable means. When you move to Texas, they can still take your 3%. Or they'll still allow you to contribute. Isn't this, this, I mean, Ah, this is a major step forward for retirement security in America, DeLeon said. I'm grateful for Governor Brown Acu Brown's acumen and his leadership. We are setting up a path for middle-class, hard-working Americans to prepare for retirement so they won't be forced into poverty, end quote. I'm not even going to read anymore. I'm not even going to read anymore because I'm going to tell you what they're really doing here. They're doing Social Security at the state level on a quote-unquote voluntary basis for a specific segment of society. The segment of society that the people with the most money will bitch about the most and clamor to get into. So that the state can take 3% of the income of its the private sector employees in the state, put it into a state investment retirement program, use the money today and promise to pay it back tomorrow. Just like Social Security. Watch this become a model across all 50 states. Watch this become a model off all 50 states. Watch states come up with interstate trading components to it. So that when Texas creates one and you move to Texas, they can trade people and trade retirement value within it. As soon as that happens, it becomes what? Interstate commerce. Enter the federal government. I'm from the federal government, and I'm here to help you. And since some states haven't implemented this wonderful program, we'll create a federal version of the program that, that interplays and works with the states. So if you leave a state and it doesn't work in the state you go to and they don't have one, you can either keep your states and contribute from there, or you can move over to the federal program. Or we'll just create one that can work alongside of it. We, why not? I mean, if you want to opt into it, you can put 2% into your federal program and 3% in your state. It'll be great. It'll be wonderful. We'll just do it automatically. We'll just tell all the employers, you just do this. Here's a form for the dummies that want to opt out of it. By the way, we have a mandatory meeting that you need to have your HR person conduct to explain to them why it's in their best interest to do it. Here you go. This is how you nationalize. This is how you nationalize retirement. You don't necessarily seize 401ks. You do what I told you earlier. You take away the cash value option in 401ks and replace it with a government municipal bond option. Then you create a private state guaranteed retirement account. You offer it to one group of people so that the people that would naturally resist it will get angry that they can't get it and tell you you better damn well make it available to them too. Because the government knows it's going broke. And it's doing everything it can to increase revenues in. And as I've said before, states and the state should be banned from the use of the term revenue. I run a business. I create revenue because I create value and I sell it to people who willingly purchase that value at agreed upon market rates and that is revenue. The government does not create revenue. The government creating revenue is like saying that when you break into somebody's house, steal their television set, go down into the pawn shop and sell the TV, 
That's revenue. And if you were to get 50 bucks for their TV and give them $10 of it back, they should shut up and be happy because they got part of the redistribution. And if you only kept 10 and you spent the other 30 that you didn't give the 10 back to the original people for the TV, beautifying the neighborhood, that that makes your theft acceptable. So they don't get to use revenue. Whenever you hear them say revenue, understand what the word is. Tax. When they say raise revenue, increase revenue, it means increase taxes. Raise taxes. They use the word revenue because it sounds better. It sounds business-like. Like, it's a businessman. He wants to increase revenue. We need to do that to reduce the debt. He wants to increase taxation. And it doesn't matter who pays the tax, you're going to pay the tax. This myth that you can tax a business is nonsense. You tax me, I charge more. That's how you run a business. I mean, anybody that doesn't get that it doesn't understand what's necessary to understand Economics 101. And most people that have been through an economics degree still don't understand this. They still don't get it because most people with an economics degree never have and never will run a business. A few will, but very few will. Most people with an economics degree either go into government or they remain an employee for the rest of their life. People with economics degrees are the worst people to listen to about how economics actually works. A little kid with a lemonade stand understands more than a person with a master's degree about economics about how to run a business. Because a little kid, when the government official shuts them down for lemonade, if they're making 20 bucks a day and the official did offer them the ability to buy a permit for $5 a day, the little kid would buy the permit for $5 a day and stay in business. The economist would want to know what we're going to do with the $5. The little kid would then say to himself, after he got tired of paying the $5 a day, is there any place I could do this where I don't have to pay the $5 a day and move his lemonade stand there? Unless he made less money there than pay, compensated for the 5 bucks, in which case he would absorb the $5 and start charging everybody for the lemonade an extra nickel to adjust the pricing upward so that he ended up with the same amount of money he started out with at the end of the day and he know that anybody competing with him with another lemonade stand there would also have to raise their prices if they wanted to be able to maintain a profit margin. And a little nine-year-old kid would fumble through this but figure it out, but a man with a master's degree in economics can't find his ass from a hole in the ground when it comes to basic economic understanding like this. And this is why they'll look at something like this and go, well, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. It creates, well, and then the ones that do will say, well, it creates a liability for taxpayers. It's not a liability for taxpayers. We're not going to pay it. It's going to go insolvent, right? We have state-run pension programs for state workers. Why shouldn't we make these available to private sector employees? It'll be self-funding. <laughs> Don't you understand, in theory, the program for an employee should be self-funding, even if the state is putting up to 3%? How, you ask? It's part of their compensation, right? So if just to make the math simple... If you do a given amount of work in your position at a state-level job that earns you a dollar, whether it's five minutes, 15 minutes, whatever it takes you to do that, a minute, you know, state workers are paid pretty good, probably a dollar a minute is probably about right, in total compensation, health care benefits, everything, but you earned a dollar. The states actually then should be saying that on all of that burden labor that it represents that dollar is it also the pension plan, so it's a dollar three. So when you budget to hire that person, you budget the 3% for the contribution to the retirement program. It should see, but again, 
Have you ever heard anybody tell you anything like this? But doesn't it make perfect sense? Uh, Joe, you need to hire somebody for your department. You can pay them a burden labor rate. I'm just going to make it simple and tell you burden labor rates, everything in there, uh, $50 an hour. But you also have to budget for their pension at 3%. So aren't you just going to figure out how to either take 3% out or pay 3% more? Because it's what you're effectively doing. Isn't it just basic common sense economics? But the same governments that have run the employee state-sponsored pension funds into the ground want to turn around and make it available to everybody, and they'll start out with lower-income tier-level people. You don't think this is a recipe for disaster? Oh, my God. But what might it do? It might even kick the can that they keep trying to kick a little bit further. Who knows? It depends. How successfully can they implement this? How many people are stupid enough to do it? Just saying. Because if you start taxing somebody, and it's what it is, it's a tax. A tax with a promise to rebate. That's what. That's exactly what this is. Tax with a promise to rebate. And you know where they're going to probably put most of the money? State bonds, municipal bonds, and federal bonds. Because they're the safest deal with the best return. Why wouldn't you want to do that? But... The person won't make that decision. This is not going to be like a 401k where you get the U.S. government bond, San Bernardino County bond. No, no, no. This, 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 this guru, investment guy, is just going to say, we're going to take all of the money and just put it here, 10% here, 15% there, 50% here, just like that. That's what they're going to do. One guy controls all the money and knows how much money's coming in, what he can buy, what he can trade, what he can make derivatives off of, what he can invest in, what he cannot invest in, that type of thing. That's where they're heading. The same exact system that has created state pension programs, city pension programs, and county pension programs around the country that are on the verge of bankruptcy are opening the doors to more people for the same type of program, hoping to stave off the imminent collapse of the ability to pay on the current obligations. There's a word for something like this. Has anybody gotten there yet? Ponzi scheme. The pool has grown the maximum capacity with the current qualifications to let somebody into the game that is the Ponzi scheme of state-sponsored pensions. We need new marks. We need new people to come into the system. And we need people that aren't quite so sophisticated that they'll understand the system to lure the sophisticated investor into the system as well. You've been had, America. You've been had, California. And this is being lauded as a great move forward for the middle class. Good job, guys. All you're doing is expanding the corruption and expanding the things that have created the problems in the first place. This is great. Let's take another one. How about a little good news? How about getting ready and uh, being prepared and getting you guys a special deal uh, from a new sponsor? So uh, I talked to Kelly John Doe from Survival Gear Bags, and I said, I would like it if you would put together a special deal for TSP members, and he's done that. And I'll put a link in today's show notes for these two deals. He put together the deal and he sent it back to me. And some of you are going to be really interested in this deal. It's a great bag, a medium transport pack with a good assortment of gear uh, and some books. And the books include Hunt, Gather, Hunt, Gather, Grow, Eat by Jason Akers, uh, who is a, a valued member of our community and has the Self-Sufficient Gardener podcast. And then the first two books from the 299 Days series by Glenn Tate, The Preparation and the Collapse. If you haven't bought those books yet, 
I'm just going to tell you, tomorrow you're going to hear a good reason to have bought those books. And I'm sure buying this way will qualify for what we're going to tell you tomorrow when Glenn Tate is on to do a follow-up to the interview about the 299-day series, which is a series of 12 books, uh, again, called 299 Days. But I also know that many of you have already, already bought that book. I also know that probably many of you listen to Jason Akers and you've already bought Jason Akers' book. So I sent Kelly an email back. And I said, Kelly, look... Um, I would really like it if you would put together a second version of this without the books. I love that you're supporting Jason and Glenn, and there's also the uh, uh, U.S. Army Survival Manuals included in there, but there's going to be a lot of people who would go, I like the gear, I like the bag, I like the setup, I like the discount, but I already have the books, and I don't want another copy of the books. So I said, why don't you call that one Stuff with Knowledge and come up with a second one? And he did, and he put some more, took the books out and added back some more gear. And it's a great start towards building a really good bug-out bag for those of you that need to do that. And it is a great bag to build your bug-out kit with. The total value of the deal, the stuff with gear deals, $165.65. Uh, the books, $168.49. So they're both about the same, $165, $168. The sale price is $125. So it's a great savings for everybody. And if you're MSB... They support the MSB with a 10% discount. You can use your 10% discount on either one of these deals. These are not publicly available. These are just for TSP people. And uh, you can look at them and decide whether or not they work for you. That Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Uh, but it's just a, a, a new sponsor saying, out of the gate, I want to do something special for the for the audience. So I will uh, conclude links to Stuff with Knowledge and Stuff with Gear uh, for you in the show notes today. And those that are thinking, well, Jack, like you're like throwing this big promotional thing in at the beginning. I'm not taking anything out of this, guys. This is, this is a deal I got for you, not a deal I make anything on. This is, this is Kelly's deal for you, not my deal for you. All right. Let's uh, go on to something else. I just want to throw something good in the middle of this because it sucks, right? So I've got one question today that's going to lead me into kind of my conclusion for today and some plans that I have around this conclusion. Uh, but it's a simple question from Jerry. I can afford to have two years of food for my family of five. I currently have one year of food. Is there any reason to not pay cash for a second year's worth of food? And the answer is both yes and no. Uh, let's go with no. You can afford it. You want it. You know why you want it. Everything else in your life is pretty well prepared off, and you would feel more comfortable with a second year uh, of food, and that would allow you to help other people in your extended family if they came to rely on you and be more able to do that, and everything else works out. Go do it. There's no reason not to. Um, you give you some reasons not to. Uh, you're not prepared, prepared elsewise. You're not prepared to defend what you have. You haven't had enough training. You don't have enough uh, ability with weapons to defend your home. You're living in an area where you're highly, highly exposed, and you would be better suited using that money toward creating some type of a fallback location or some type of arrangement with other people. Or some, I mean, if you're, if you're not otherwise fully prepared, then a year of food is more than enough. A year of food will take you a long time. A year of food in a situation where we have a partial collapse and you can only get 50% of what you're accustomed to, will take you two years if you do the math and figure out how, right? That's without rationing. So the, the, the reality is I think that a year of food for most people is enough when you have it for your whole family. And I think that that allows you to take in additional family and go six months 100% off of what you've got stored. And I don't think we're going to live in a society where we have to live for a year or more, only on, there'll be no commerce, there'll be no exchange, there'll be no barter, there'll be no rule, there'll be nothing. It'll be freaking worse than revolution, the new TV show. And I don't know if I mean worse than the way it is or worse than how it's turning out to be as a TV show, 
right? It'll be the end of the world as we know it, the zombie apocalypse, the Mayan apocalypse, whatever, and, and, and we're going to have to live on the food for two years in a hole in the ground, right? If you believe that, it makes you feel better, go do it. But I don't think that's where we're headed. And that brings me to what I want to conclude with today. This weekend, I uh, spent a lot of time cooking, doing videos and things like that on, on practical preparedness, things that you would do if the power went out, and ways to incorporate it into your daily life so when you need to do it, you know how to do it. And I also spent a lot of time on the Zello Network talking to uh, a lot of members from the uh, Survival Podcast audience. And uh, apparently our group is so successful, the Zello CEO and their tech team want to talk to our group about how to make Zello a better application. That's maybe another reason if you don't, Uh, join us on Zello yet, you should. You go to Zello, Z-E-L-O dot com. You can get an app for your phone. You can get download for your computer. You can basically talk like a radio network and look up the Survival Podcast Network. Join that network and take part in what we do. Uh, but I was on there, and, and I don't remember which person said this, so it's not like I'm not giving them credit. I just don't remember which one it was. And said, I want you to, I want to know what you think about this new video out by a guy named Main Prepper on YouTube. It's gone viral. It's got like 70,000 views or something like that. And uh, as soon as I heard kind of the angle, I said, basically, I think this guy's probably a complete clown. And he wasn't. So if, you're, if you've seen it, know that I'm not saying that. But that, that was my instinct. I said, guys, i got to go look at this thing, and I'll come back and talk to you. So I logged off. I went and listened to the video. And Main Prepper's a guy that's been in combat. He's been overseas recently. He's dealt with seeing guys blown up by IEDs being shot at. And the name of the video is Preppers Will Die. And, um, Preppers Will Die in a WROL scenario. WROL. Without rule of laws. What WROL means if you uh, don't know the acronym. And he goes through this whole thing. And basically, The parts that are spot on is that goes on and on and on about how he sees people out there with kitted up rifles, with all these accessories and crap on it, with no real training or they've taken one course. They don't have much ammo. They've got scopes on their rifles that aren't even zeroed. And they talk about mowing the bad guys down as though they'll line up for you. And that's not how combat is. He talks about how the government has lied to you and told you that our enemies are cowards because they fight from cover and hide and attack and run away and set off IEDs and that they're not cowards, they're smart. And if the foreign government was occupying our land, that that's how, if we were going to be successful, we would fight. And he doesn't say this, but I mean, I would add to it, it's exactly the way we fought the American Revolution. Right? We are the model for that type of warfare in a war of occupation, a war of revolution. I'm not saying the bad guys are right. I'm saying that's, that's the smart way to fight. And what he said is, when I was over there, I hated my enemy, but I never underestimated my enemy. And many of you are underestimating the enemy you have. He talks about movies that are actually close to reality, like Saving Private Ryan, the sounds, the smells, the cries of warfare, and what it's really like, and say none of you are preparing for this. And when, when the lights, and this is where it diverges, and goes to the point where I go, it's gone all wrong. When the lights go out, and this is a quote, and I'm 100% sure they will. Okay, you can't be 100% sure of anything. You really can't. I'm not even 100% sure of exactly what a financial collapse is coming, uh, is going to look like, even though I know it's coming, because I can do math. Exactly how it will transpire. If even people will realize it's happened after it happened, I'm not 100% sure of that. 100% sure they'll go off and stay off. And then the prognostication is that there's about 300 million people out there that are unprepared, and then there's preppers. 
The preppers will just kind of fade it out of existence at first, and then the other 300 million will start killing each other, and only 10% will make it out the other side. And those 10% will be hardened, battle-hardened, tough, slick, smart enemies that will do anything they can to kill you. And if you're not prepared for that, they will overrun you and take what you have. And instead of buying more expensive weapons, buy lots of ammo, train, put your group together, get ready for this end-of-world scenario, this world without the rule of law, W-R-O-L, without rule of law. That's not what you should be preparing for. You could prepare for pockets of that. You can prepare for places where the infrastructure will break for a while and have to be mopped up. You can prepare for that, and you should. You can prepare for Argentina times 10, where murder and kidnapping and things like that and, and, and crime go through the roof. You can prepare for a society where the gangs become more violent and more brazen and more out in the open and do more horrible things. You can prepare for all that, but don't prepare for a world without the rule of law. It's a fool's errand. It's more of a death sentence than anything else. We don't need to be preparing for a world without rule of law. It's kind of stupid if you think about it. Anything except the one in 100 billion perfect shot scenario of a coronal mass ejection that wipes out not just our grid, but the entire world's grid you know, for 10 years can cause this. And even that is only going to cause so much of it. This guy talks as if when we have an eventual collapse that the whole country from sea to shining sea will exist in a permanent state of warfare with nobody in charge and nobody in control and everybody just killing each other. Do you know what you should be preparing for? <laughs> Not W-R-O-L. You better prepare for E-R-O-L. What does E stand for? Excessive. Excessive rule of law. Let me tell you something. Just because the United States currency collapses doesn't mean the Bradleys won't fire up and roll anymore. It doesn't mean that when they tell the National Guard to go put down a, 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 a riot that they won't do it. It doesn't mean that the drones won't fly. It doesn't mean that they won't come up with a new phony money scheme and put it in place. And if you believe that your neighbor will shoot you for a meal of beans and rice... Your neighbor will then give up 50% of his wealth and his T-bone for a meal of rice even easier, won't he? See, what we're missing here is as unprepared as the government is to actually help us when this happens, they're not unprepared to deal with it when it happens. And don't think for one minute I'm saying this is a good thing in any way or this is a great thing or this will fix it. This is the problem with preppers and survivalists and everybody in the alternative media. Whenever they go to an extreme and you pull back from the extreme to reality, they think you're saying it's all going to be swell and wonderful, we'll all have unicorns, we'll all fart angels, it'll be great. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about a very dark period in our nation's future bearing down on us and being prepared for it. But there's one prepper out there more prepared than all of us, Uncle Sam. They're building right now an intelligence gathering uh, complex larger than the, than, the, than the federal capitol building, larger than the Pentagon, just to capture data on what everybody's doing. They're planning on putting tens of thousands of drones, which can easily be converted to lethal strike vehicles in the air over our skies. This is public information. Every major department of government is buying millions of rounds of ammunition including departments of government that you look at and go, what? Like NOAA, right? The weather people, 
are buying ammunition. There's plenty of food stored up. Contrary to what you've been led to believe, there's gold in Fort Knox. Maybe not as much as they've told us, but it's there. If they want to go to a gold-backed currency between what the Fed holds and what the federal government holds and what the regional major banks hold, they can flip it to a gold-backed currency almost overnight after they suck all your wealth up and use it to further this police state. You don't have a police state collapse and not use its power. Understand that. They'll use the power. We're supposed to believe that when this falls apart, everything will just go away. And I'll tell you why people want to believe that. They look at it. They know it's so horrible. They know it's so awful. They know it's so soul-sucking. They know it's so wealth-devaluing. They know it's so difficult to fight against. They'd rather have a fantasy of fighting Red Dawn than the reality of dealing with the oppressive boot of the state on their neck as an economy collapses and a dying giant takes out as many things as he can on his way down and rebuilds a system that's even worse than the one that we started with if we don't step in and change it when it falls. The reality that I am giving you is actually more horrific than the fantasy in Maine Prepper's mind. This is a man that dealt with combat. Everything he says about combat is true. And because of that, he's applied that reality to a fantasy that that's our future. And again, it's not that it can't happen, but let me tell you what's more likely to happen. You're more likely to go out and get $1 this week, play your state lottery and win it, and then give the, you know, give the first dollar in payment to your brother. Just as a symbolic act. Say, go play the lottery too, and he wins it. And after he wins it, he gives the first dollar in payment out of it to your sister. And she plays it, and she wins it. Then she turns around and gives it to your mom, and the next week she wins. And then your mom gives it to your dad, and he wins, and everybody wins. Can it happen? Can it happen with an automatic pick six off the computer starting with one dollar? Yeah. Are you going to plan your life around it? Or are you going to plan your life around the fact you're probably not going to win the lottery, and there's a lot of crap you're going to have to deal with because of that? Well... It's like not losing the lottery, I guess, in a way, because there's no good that comes from the level of breakdown that Maine Prepper is speaking of. But this concept, this Mad Max scenario, the mutant zombie biker gang scenario, all of this crap, none of this makes any sense. And I tell you this as someone that studied history. Every time a government, quote-unquote, collapsed, there was no continuous power vacuum. There were power vacuums. But they were Im immediately filled with whoever the strongest, most able person was to fill the power vacuum. And what people want to believe is, well, there's never been a time like this in history. And as I've said before, first of all, yes, there has. And second of all, you don't even know the part of that where you're right. There's never been a time in history where so much power to stomp on the throat of the average person has existed. There's never been a time where you could track everything everybody did. I got another email I didn't put in today's show, but you know it's on the ability to track license plates and how it's being implemented with camera systems all over the country right now. I'll put a link in today's show notes so you can look at it. I told you that too, didn't I? Didn't I tell you that when they were talking about a mileage tax, how they could just use RFID tags in your, in your sticker, and then that they even really didn't even need to do that? That just as they continue to build out the camera infrastructure, they would be able to do a mileage tax just on the license plate that's on the front and back of your car. Guess what? No problem. 
All this stuff that they said was a problem, there's technical challenges and all this and that, and you know, identity theft concerns or whatever. No, all you got to do, if you could send somebody a ticket for running a red light because a camera takes a picture of their license plate, you could take a picture of where their license plate enters a highway, where it exits a highway, and send them a bill. Because that's what a ticket is. It's a bill for an involuntary tax payable to the state. So these people that live in this belief that what we need to be preparing for is a without rule of law scenario are living in a fantasy that seems awful but replaces a harsher truth that an excessive rule of law is what's coming. A point where everything you try to do is monitored. Everything you try to, to accomplish is, is held in check with whatever the needs of the state and the states are. <laughs> a place where the, work, the, the prisons get turned into work factories. You think I'm going off the deep end? I'm not. Just look at the infrastructure. Ask yourself what you need it for. Or ask yourself this. Do you really think the people in power are going to act like they did in the James Wesley Rawls book? They'll just leave. They'll, just, they'll be so scared of what's coming that the, the Congress, the President, everybody, they'll just pack up and leave and go to Beijing or something and hang out and drink cocktails and live off the wealth they've stolen. Or do you think they'll say, we're not, we're not giving this up. We're not giving this up. What do we have at our disposal here? Right? We got drones. Oh, let's not use those. We got the United States military. Let's not use that. We have the ability to control police forces at the state and local level all over the United States. We've trained them now. So they'll listen to us. But let's not do that either. Right? Well, we got to pay people and the money's becoming worthless. We'll just make a new money and pay them that. How will we convince them it's worth something? I'll tell you how we'll do it. We'll take it as taxes. We'll, we'll allow it for the fulfillment of obligations and debts to the United States government. And we'll tell people you're going to take the money and they'll do it. But it'll be worth half or a quarter of what it was. It doesn't matter. They'll deal with it. They always have. We devalued their money by 99% over a couple, you know, few decades anyway, and they dealt with that. And the only reason it didn't go to 100% is that was impossible. Now that it has, we'll just reset the clock. You think they won't do that? Right? You think they won't send the thugs to put down rebellion? You don't think they'll convince the people putting down the rebellion that they're doing what's in the nation's best interest? And don't you think on one level they will be, and that will be the lie used or the truth used to sell the lie? There's so much that needs to be done, and we'll get them to do it, and then we'll convince them they need to do the things that don't need to be done. You don't think that's where we're headed? You don't think we're headed to a place where it's more about what the government does to you than the fact that the government's not there? Have you read any history books whatsoever? This is where we're headed. And I plan to actually do a more in-depth response to that video on YouTube. I feel that the only way I can actually respond to that video is to respond with a YouTube video. Doing it here on the podcast is just a close for today. Because I know some of you guys don't even bother with YouTube, and I wanted you to know about this too. If you want to see Main Prepper's video, I wasn't going to play it here because it's pretty long, and the show's already long on a Monday, but you can go listen to it. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Again, I don't think that he's wrong about combat. And I think if you're going to live in an area where you're surrounded by combat, his advice will keep you alive. I think if you're going to live in the future that we have in this nation, his advice might keep you alive through an event or two. But if it's the exclusive thing that you do, if you think that's what you're planning for and you only plan for complete and catastrophic failure of the infrastructure in the system, 
You're going to have your ass awful exposed when only components of the system fail and oppression is used to close the gaps. This is what governments do. This is what governments have always done. They'll tell you about the fall of the Roman Empire, but they won't tell you about the, the, the states that were formed out of it and the oppressive nature of them. They'll tell you about collapse. They won't tell you about after collapse. Because after collapse doesn't do as much to freak you out and go from one year of food to two year of food with Mountain House on pallets. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying you better know why you're doing what you're doing. And you better understand where we're headed in this country. It's to a pretty dark place. And I'm not saying there's no hope. And I'm not saying there's nothing that we can do. What I'm telling you is we're heading into a shift. We're shifting into a point where the global powers believe they have the right to tax every person around the globe in a consolidated global taxation, global government scheme. We're heading into a place where the United States government knows it's on the ropes economically. They know their place in the world is falling. But you know what? They're still the most powerful military force in the world. And if you don't think they'll use that both on and off our own soil, you are sadly mistaken. And that doesn't mean to prepare for battle with that. Because that's just going to get you dead. It means to prepare for the reality. Yes, prepare to defend yourself, prepare to feed yourself, prepare to work with other people, and prepare to have solutions to the problems that are coming. Because if you don't, they will. And you won't like their solutions. With that, this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're